Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 103. I'm Sean and Ronan, we are back from our travels in Essen with a few games in tow. We are indeed. It's going to be the first of three episodes coming out in which we're going to be picking over the bones of a few releases from Essen. With Sean this time, it's Sean and me, but then Sean's a busy man. He's got lots of work on, so I'm going to be joined by two guests in the next two episodes, being Eleanor, who's going to talk about her first Essen, and Puria's back in the pit after a long hiatus. So you're going to get a bunch of games picked over, and we've got six this time around, Sean? Yeah, we've got six, five of which are games that we actually previewed, Ronan, and we've just got one that we had, didn't preview before Essen. Yeah, so both of you probably have heard the treasure hunt for these games already. So we're just going to tell you what we thought of them now that we've actually played them, whether we confirmed the status we gave them earlier. Mm, indeed. Okay, and as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself with gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we're on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. And of course, please go and check out our YouTube channel for our pit stop videos. Many of the games we are talking about today are featured in those pit stop videos. So please go along there and give us a like and subscribe. first game we're going to review this time is Otis, a two-to-four player game taking around 60 minutes, designed by Claude Lucini and published by Pearl Games and Libelud. In Otis, each player is going to be controlling a set of eight divers who are going to be salvaging resources from the sea and taking them back to a colony on the edge of this drowned world. Players are going to be racing to fulfill one of three contracts on offer, and each of those contracts require a set of resources to be placed on one of five levels on the board. Now, there are eight divers in a team, and they are placed in a column, and the top three divers are always up in the air, and the bottom five are going to be in the depths at one of those five different levels. On a player's turn, they're going to activate a key, which is linked to one of the five levels. That's going to activate both a sponsor power, which is on the board and generic to everyone, and a diver power, which will be whichever diver is on that level at the time. Now, the different divers, there are four different resources in the game, and there are four experts, each one linked to each of those resources. And when you activate an expert, you're going to claim one cube, one resource of that color, and put it on that particular level. And every time you activate a diver that diver is going to be taken off your column pushed to the top and it's going to push all those other divers down so they're constantly rotating on what level they're on also the key that you've used is taken and put inactive below your board and you will not get that back until you fill up the bottom of your board and get it returned to you now that diver may not have to go back up to the surface because there are resources which are batteries and if you spend a battery that diver can stay in place Linked to that, one of the diver powers you have is the engineer. Now, they can upgrade your mechanic or your hacker. Because the other use of a battery is, for one battery, you can move a diver up or down one level before you activate a particular level. You can upgrade your mechanic to increase that movement for two to three to four, and you do that with your engineer. Or you can increase your hacker. Now, your hacker is down at the bottom. I said you've got these keys. You've got five levels and one X key, which will operate any level. You need to use all six before you get them returned to you to open your options up again. But your hacker, every time you upgrade it, will push across to the left. And that will allow you to return your keys more 
quickly. Now, I said there was an X key you can use because the X key rotates the sponsor powers, which is the first thing you trigger on each turn. And they're going to give you things like those batteries that you need to stay down or to move around. They might give you an extra credit. Credits can be used to pay for the activation of certain divers, such as the engineer and others. They might let you operate a diver twice. They might give you a key back from the bottom, or they might, for that amount of money, allow you to upgrade a diver, score a point, and then that diver will become more effective. Either, for example, the engineer who costs a credit usually will become free, or the four levels of experts will get you the resources, will get you something bonus, again, like a credit or an X key or a battery or whatever it may be. The other three powers of divers I haven't discussed are the Explorer. They let you claim a bonus tile for money, and that bonus tile will give you a one-off bonus, plus another bonus of either money or points every time you complete a contract on a level. To complete a contract, you collect that set of resources, and as soon as you have them, you hand them in and claim a contract from the general display, and that's going to score you points. There's also the Spy. The Spy for Money will allow you to either draw four contracts and retain one as a private one only you can fulfill, or allow you to copy the power of a diver on the same depth level of a neighbor's board. And the last one's the Trader, and the Trader's going to let you buy and sell resources, and you can sell them from whatever level the Trader's on, or buy them and put them into that level. That's going to help you do contracts, or sell them back to get more credits, or possibly points if there are very few of those resources in the market all the players are racing to get 18 points when one player does that it's the final round and we see who's got the most points and they will be the winner off otis now sean i was excited about this before spiel uh several things were quite exciting to me but i'm going to start where you'd like to start the theme and the looks were attractive to me what did you think about those they didn't stand out from the crowd right they, they were okay. I quite like the the underwater city and and the look of that. The artwork for the individual characters was was quite nice, cartoony style to them. I liked it. I didn't love it. The theme, however, I never once thought that I was in an underwater city and I was in any way, shape, or form thematically connected to this game at all. It didn't feel like maybe you were running a crew at all and you had to assign different people to different different areas. You weren't feeling that sort of business running side more than the aquatic side? Not really. The only thematic part really for me was the mechanic who allows you to switch around the different characters so that you can activate the one you want and making him better allows you to do that more so i kind of saw the thematic parts of that and the hacker allowed you to get people quick more quickly back onto your player board i kind of felt the thematic side of those two but everything else not you felt really. the hacker was thematic that was just that to me was eh. I just felt like him hacking into the system and making things easier for you, kind of like, yeah, I felt like he was hacking into the system. I didn't feel that at all. No? and No, no, not definitely with the hacker. And actually, I've got a big problem with the mechanic because, <laughs> the mechanic and the mechanic, because the spatial puzzle is what drew me in. And at the beginning of the game, I'm enjoying how hard it is and how tight it is. And it's very difficult to get the right cubes on the right level because the higher up depths, like depth one has only got space for three cubes, which won't allow you to do the better contracts. So maybe you want to start collecting them further down. But every time you use a diver, they pop back up to the top again. And it takes a long time to get them back again, back to say level four, to start collecting up the resources again. I feel it's hard and it's like, a, okay, now I'm having to think my way around here and use my X keys and, and look at what the sponsor powers are because they're important. I might need that battery to do something. 
once you can upgrade the mechanic and you can move the divers around much more freely, you know, you can move them three or four spaces in one pop. And then maybe you upgrade your metal expert, which is going to give you lots of batteries every time you trigger them. Then it becomes too easy to me. And I lose that spatial tightness and I just sort of go, well, to be honest, now I can do whatever I want to do. Yeah, you're right. It did feel like a very obvious thing to do, which is why I absolutely rinsed it in a, in a couple of the games we played, Ronan. So you certainly did rinse it, and it worked, which was a, which is a puzzle. <laughs> Another thing, slightly about well, about looks of the game, Ronan. Those components they had a bit of a problem in their shipping in Essen, and all of those player boards came out a bit bent. They're a little bit warped, a little bit. Dizzy. I mean, you can you can straighten them out. That's okay. But if you try and use them warped, it's very fiddly. But the, it's a little bit fiddly in itself. I, it didn't bother me too much. The fact you push them across and you got to flip them. And to, it was okay. It wasn't the smoothest thing possible. Yeah, I felt like I was spent like a quarter of my time just trying to pick up the, the chits and move them to the top of the pile. I found it very fiddly for me. But well, you've got special docu- hands. Yeah, yeah we've documented my special hands. So that, that's, that's probably right. just me. What I'll say with the uh, mechanism is that, you know, I said it was hard at the beginning. I felt like the game therefore ended up being front-loaded. And all my setup and all I was trying to do was, was happening early. And then once I got halfway into the game, if I'd used my spy a couple of times, I had private contracts, which took away the competition for the contracts on display. And then I had my mechanic going and at the beginning there's a little bit of interaction there's just a little bit of looking around and going what are you collecting on what level what do i contract i think you're going for once i hit halfway through a game i felt like i was playing solitaire i had my own contracts i had my own business i had my own mechanic i was doing i've upgraded three or four of the divers the ones i want to upgrade and i'm just then churning and churning and churning this away until i'm done and i don't really care what any other player's doing no, not really. And it also kind of feeds into something we discussed after playing this a couple of times, was that I kind of felt like it was the choices were all very simple. You were quite surprised at that. And you were, no, no, there's, there's, there's loads of choices. And I think we're kind of both right. I think definitely at the beginning of the game, you have got a wealth of choice and you're not sure what path to go down. But as you said, Ronan, once you go down the path, I think the choices become very obvious. I felt like there was a lot of small choices, which was almost overwhelming because there was several parts you go to, but they all had very small results. So I didn't think the problem was the lack of choices. I felt the problem was a lack of consequence from each choice. Yeah, I can see that, Ronan. I'm going to sum up now, if you don't mind. So coming into this, I wasn't that excited about the game before i think i I put it down as a trap so it had a bit of winning over to do for me i think it did to some degree i quite liked the simple economy i quite liked the hacker and the mechanic mechanisms there were things that i definitely did like i never felt any thematic connect with the game the warp boards were really annoying, but that could be solved. But yeah, it's it's a so-so game for me. It's it's neither a hit or a miss. It'll be something that I'll play, but I'm not rushing to. I think Otis was good. It was solid. I'd actually say, apart from Sean, most other players I played it with enjoyed it more than I did. But ultimately, it wasn't replayable enough. And it's not going to stick around. And because it, it hasn't got that right decision arc. So 
it's worth a certainly a play of your time it's probably worth a few plays in a year's time am i still going to own otis probably not because just fairly good isn't good enough to stick around but like if it's on the table someone offers it give it a go you might enjoy it more than i did because certainly other players did sean what's up next so it's another one that we talked about before the Essen Spiel. It's Azul from Plan B Games, designed by Michael Kiesling, playing two to four players. And Ronan, we both said this was a fairly strong treasure, so a lot to live up to. The backstory is the King of Portugal has decided to decorate his palace with the beautiful Moorish tiles, the Azulejos, and <laughs> and he had seen them on a visit to Alhambra. Players are tile lane artists and they're tasked with embellishing the walls of the Royal Palace of Evora in Portugal. So in the game, you're going to have tiles placed on little holders in the middle of the table. You're going to have four of the tiles on, on each one. You're going to have a player board with a score track, a holding area for tiles, a scoring area and a penalty area. So on a turn, you're going to take all of one colour from one of the tile holders in the middle of the table, but the remainder is going to be pushed into the middle of the table. Tiles are going to be then placed on the holding area on your player board in the rows. You can only have one colour per row as long as the same tile has not already been placed in the corresponding row of the scoring area. Any tiles that you can't place go into your penalty area and they're going to score you minus points. Players can also claim tiles from the centre following the same rules, i.e. that you've got to take all of one colour. But the first person to do this is going to get a token that they're going to score minus one point. It goes into their penalty area on their board. At the end of the round, players are going to take one tile from each of their completed holding rows and place it onto a space for that colour on the corresponding scoring row, which in turn is going to score you points depending on whether it's alone or for tiles attached in the column or row. After four rounds, the game is going to end. You're going to get bonus points awarded for completed rows and columns and for having five of a colour. That, in a nutshell, Ronan, is Azul. We talked about how beautiful this one looked from afar. How did you feel once you got your... your your dirty mitts into that bag of tiles. It was all about the feel. Oh. <laughs> it, it isn't disappointing. It's literally the first thing I did when I got the game back home was literally tip them all into that bag and just rummage through it. Oh, it feels you, I heard you just pouring them over your head in the shower. Just, ah, ah, ah. I told Nat not to tell you that. Like a perfume advert, just scooping <laughs> tiles over yourself. <laughs> Topless. It's, it's quite the vision. Yeah, it, it appeals, doesn't it? Just straight away, it looks different. It looks, let's steal some Sean words, vibrant and striking. And it's it draws you in immediately. And it's got that tactile appeal. And you're moving things around in patterns. And there's definitely a lot of people who just like the fact that I'm picking up chaos and I'm putting it into a pattern. And that makes me happy. And I am 100% one of those people. It's triggering my little dopamine here. <laughs> The whole thing feels well made. The tiles feel well made. The design of the game feels well made. Even to the point of there's the box insert. There's that one token for the first player, a tiny little cardboard square, and there's a space for it. Dink. Just Dink. There. there you go. That makes goes me there. happy. <laughs> it makes me so happy. Oh, my. Everything's contained. Wow. Okay. I'm happy. Let's talk about gameplay because we've geeked out another way. <laughs> <laughs> 
it flips the Otis problem on its head. And for as all, it starts easy because you've got that blank board. You can take whatever you like. Everything's cool. And as you go on, you restrict yourself and the game gets harder and harder. It gets that arc right, Sean. There is the possibility of boxing yourself into a corner and in the last couple of rounds having a horrific turn and having to take five extra tiles and losing a load of points. And that works. It does. But you say it starts off easy. I think our first few games start off easy. But when you realize that you can box yourself into corners and you can leave yourself high and dry, that first choice becomes very difficult. I have to argue with you here that I started off my first games easy because, as you know, the first couple of times I played, I played it wrong and made it harder (laughs) for everyone. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Apart from you being a clown, (laughs) I think everybody else started off quite easy. Let me explain. Let me explain. Come on. I've got no excuse for it. I played it that you can only have one row of each colour in your holding area, which isn't correct. You can have multiple rows of blacks or whatever it may be. It does make it a lot harder and it makes it a lot easier to stitch each other up with tiles because someone fills their one spot with blacks and there's a pile of five blacks left. You're like, (laughs) they're all falling on the factory floor. Here's the thing though, Sean. Having started it playing with a harder variant, Let's call it a variant. Let's not call it a rules mistake. And then move into the actual game, which is easier. I prefer the harder variant. And this is a game where I feel like the harder it is, the better it is for me. And that is a perfect example of why I hate you. <laughs> you want to be left alone to build your own pattern in your own little way without I, I like, a big opportunity to stitch you up. I like the arc. I like the empty board. The empty canvas, I want to build my Azale horse on the wall of the palace, but towards the end, then I want to be looking around at the other artists thinking, I really need that to finish off my masterpiece. But you, but you want to do it in like the last five minutes, whereas I want to, and this is a really, another thing, really quick game. I want to spend all 30 minutes near enough being able to stitch each other up. I want to have the opportunity to be like, oh, you've gone red. There's a lot of reds left. That was a bad idea. <laughs> let, let the game start. You're almost <laughs> slapping us around the head before we start. Yes. Isn't that wonderful? No, build Why have we spent longer talking about me getting the rules wrong than the actual game in the box, by the way? <laughs> this I don't understand. Well, well, but it does lead on to something else. We've got the Joker tiles in Essen, which are Joker tiles. They're wild and they can add to anything. And to be honest with you, I'm willing to throw them in the bin because it just makes it too easy. I'm not, I don't want it easier. I want don't it do that. They're gorgeous. They are gorgeous. Find, right. find, use them as a start token or something for something. Make a piece of art with them. I yeah. don't know what I can make do, out of seven Do tiles. something if you don't like them. But don't, don't I'm, I'm them. kind of going on like, I want this game to be harder. I really enjoy it. I enjoy it with the actual rules. I enjoy it with my messed up rules. It's really short. Everyone's involved. Players' turns are really quick. You feel like you're driving your own decisions. It has the correct decision arc. It's really simple to teach. It's got massive cross appeal. I think there's going to be a point where this might tip over into being the next big crossover hit. I genuinely do. I think it's got that thing where I can teach anyone how to play Azul and they can pick it up. I was at work yesterday talking to someone and they went, oh, I really like board games. I just picked something up that everyone was talking about. I haven't played it yet. And it's called Pandemic. That person hasn't has played Monopoly and Cluedo Scrabble and Pandemic. I think Azul 
can reach that level of popularity in the next few years. I, I'm a big fan of it. It's, it's not the greatest game I've ever played, but it's a really good game with massive cross appeal across lots of audiences. Okay, for a sum up, I, I actually completely agree. And while you were talking, it actually made me think you could sell this to people who are doing Sudoku, you know, like just people who know anything about like noughts and crosses, anything at all. Like, noughts no, and just, crosses? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going, I'm, I'm going right breathe, there. People who breathe. People, yeah. People who have feet. <laughs> <laughs> but just, just having like the grid and being able to block each other off and, and do things within the grid, you can sell it to somebody. Like, and I, th- I think you're absolutely right. You made me think there. Well done. Okay, so for this one, it's, it's an abstract game. Normally, I'd run for the hills. Don't care on this occasion. Very easy to explain. Very easy to get started. As Ronan said, it's not a hard sell for anybody. The tiles feel beautiful in my hands. I like the gentle progression from a fairly comfortable start. When I say comfortable, not easy. And then going on to quite nasty towards the end and making sure that you stitch somebody else up before they stitch you up i think it plays well at all the player counts so yeah what's not to like that's a big hit is azul okay the last game for this half of this episode is dragon's gate college designed by thomas van der ginster and wolf plank from nsk and games for two to four players taking 60 to 90 minutes in dragon's gate college you're going to be running a house within an adventurous school what you're going to be doing is recruiting novices, recruiting professors, building some facilities and training these novices to become one of the three classes of adventure within the game. The mechanism you use to do that is there's going to be a pool of dice which will increase as the game goes on. They're going to include neutral white dice and player colour dice. At the beginning of a round, they get rolled. On your turn, you're going to choose one. You don't actually have to assign it to a spot on the board. There's no limited spots. But there are several actions, and you must have a certain number to take certain actions. So you choose a dice, say, I wish to take this action with it. If it's a neutral colour dice, that's it, done and dusted. If it's another player's colour, they can then also do an action on your turn using the number on the dice, but not necessarily the same action as you have chosen. And there's a combined die that comes in later that gets rolled, and everyone can choose an action from that. So what can you do when you choose an action? Well, you can swap an used neutral colour die out for one of your own, and then you're going to get to take more actions when people choose it later in the game. In terms of actually getting somewhere in the game, you can recruit novices. Novices have attributes in brawn, stealth, or wizardry, and they need to have some sort of attribute in those three things for to become a warrior. They must have brawn and a rogue and wizard, similar things with the attributes. You can recruit professors as long as you have space in them within your school. And they have the same attributes as the novices, but you measure that boost of attributes on tracks within your your own player board because what you've done with your tracks, with your professors and the facilities you can build by spending money and placing them onto your board, they will help every novice when you send them off to get trained. Now, I'm talking about facilities. There's a little bit of polyomino, patchworky stuff in that you can build certain size buildings. They cost a certain amount of money and you put them into play onto your board. Again, they're going to affect the tracks. They're going to give you more slots for professors. They're going to give you like novice spaces that might score some points at the end of the game and various different things. When you build a building, though, that's going to add to your maintenance and that's an amount of money you're going to have to pay every turn. Otherwise, you're going to lose points. So I'm talking about money. You can just hand dice in straight for money. You can hand a die in to turn money straight into points. Or you can start going adventuring. You can train these novices to become a level 1, 2, or 3 warrior, wizard, or rogue. You look at the novice powers. 
you add whatever however you've been able to boost the tracks up and each of the levels of these adventurers requires a certain amount and there's there's tiles that mix and match it up that might require four in the prime attribute and two in the other two wherever it may be the higher levels require you to have trained certain adventurers before you can move on and train them in there when you train a warrior, it's going to score you points, get you money, and get you trophies, which is some in-game scoring. When you train a rogue, you're going to move along a stealth track. At the end of the game, whoever's first along the stealth track is going to score most points down to whoever's least along the stealth track is going to score least points. And when you train a wizard, you're going to get wizard cards, which are in-game bonus powers. There's also a grid, and the column in which you've trained this particular novice will give you some sort of bonus in points and money, and possibly imps, which allow you to mitigate dice. Last couple of things you can do are try and take first player, which otherwise will rotate around the board, or go into a training dungeon, moving along the tracks, getting some bonuses as you go along, and it's a race, and the first to finish will get a gold trophy, for, again, possible in-game scoring, and a few more points than the players who finished that track later on. At the end of the game, which is after five rounds, you're going to score for having some money, for any imps you have left over, for collecting sets or different trophies, for being first on the stealth track, for having the most novice spaces on your board, for having sets of trained adventurers, and you're going to lose points for any spaces you've left uncovered on the building area of your own house board. Sean, Dragon's Gate College. It takes up a lot of table space. <laughs> That was going to be my first point, Ronan. <laughs> the size of the board compared to what you can actually do, I think it sets you off on the wrong foot. There is so much wasted space on this board with just nonsense. You think you're getting into a really deep, thinky game, and I didn't get that impression once I'd finished, Ronan. Have you been reading my notes? <laughs> It's huge. I'm going to have a play a little game with Sean. What percentage of the space on that board do you feel was just wasted? Just useless? Useless? Oh, my God. 60 to 70. I was going 75. I was yeah. going... Like, even the spaces where you do stuff are huge. You should, they're like 10 centimetre long areas for a disc that's a centimetre across. Insane. It's like... Why is it that big? Like, and it makes the game hard to play for some people. I was at the bottom of the board. All yeah, the little, this is going to The up. tiny little chits that have the the new professors and the new students that come out into the game are right at the far end. And icons on them are tiny. They're microscopic. It's like two different companies made this game. Like one said, right, we're going to go big. And the other one was like, no, we're going to go micro. And you've got so much space on the board. It's not like they made them small for a reason. There's room to have massive. You can have chits that are six inches square. They'd still fit on your donk. They're about two centimetres across with trying to fit in these three things next to 80% artwork. It just doesn't. It's non-functional. Given that you don't actually place the dice onto the board... You don't really need much of a board at all. It could literally be 25% of the size and it would work. And I know we're going on about that a lot, but Sean mentioned it there. The fact that it's been given as this huge presentation, it really leads to a bit of deflation when you realise that actually what I can do is quite limited. I'm just getting novices and I'm training them somehow. And a lot of the other stuff is just noise. 
So you, you talked about like your limited choice. I felt like I was on rails, but I'll also tie in the thematic side of that. Like, did you ever feel like you were off on an adventure? There's nothing on that whole side of the board that makes you feel like, oh yeah, you're sending people out to go on an adventure. That at least would have said to me, you know what, I know why I'm doing this. Yeah, I don't have a lot of choice in it, because that's kind of what I have to do to win the game. But why am I doing it? It's The whole sort of Harry Potter slash fantasy theming is odd. I'm not sure they found like a, a theme they were very happy with, to be honest with you. I just a simple occurrence to me, the fact that you're training novices is boring. Because you're just filling in a grid and getting a reward and you know what you're getting. I hate throwing in generic fantasy tropes. But Sean, even if they had a little lineup, which you flip over of monsters that require different attributes for you to defeat and you get different rewards. And there was a deck of them. And it was something different each game. And it was interesting. You flipped over, oh, there's an ogre. Oh, that's a load of points. I'm going to train up specifically to get that ogre. That, even though I hate the idea of it, I'm hating myself for saying it, would be a lot more interesting than the very dry spreadsheet nature of do I have a rogue that has six, three, and three? Yes, here we go. Good. I move up on the stealth track. I get my stuff. It's very mechanical. Yeah, even a picture of somebody going off on an adventure. Just, just something. You just like a picture, don't you? Just anything to say, you know what? This is what you're doing. And I can see it any representation of that on the board there wasn't any room it's all right okay. no well that's that's the main thing yeah i suppose so the, the huge board the tiny icons the thematic disconnect you think come on come on guys give this game a chance just give, show me what the rule book's like oh, the rule book is <laughs> terrible it just misses stuff out now the guys who designed it designed yido and i i feel terrible ragging on their game but so far, I'd like to point out we're ragging on the production of the game. Okay, <laughs> that to me, it's all production and the rule book again. I had to send off sort of messages and he was really nice. Thomas got back to me with some answers to clarify about seven or eight rules that I couldn't play the game. And we've done a pit stop. I couldn't do the pit stop accurately without some clarification. The rule book doesn't have all the rules in. Something as simple as the start player track there's this one area that you can go to assign things and it doesn't really clarify how you can assign things down there how some end game scoring works it's not clear at all you get some points for getting your dice into the pool doesn't clarify that it's badly made short it's been misjudged how they've packaged it they haven't done a decent rule book in there the icons are not good enough and they have not given this game a chance I can only agree with you, mate. I think, though, just to start saying something positive about the game, I think there are interesting things, but singular interesting things. A lot of the mechanisms in here just don't bleed into each other. I like the dice mechanism that drives it. I like the thought behind that, that you can play your own colour, but if you play somebody else's colour, they also get something. So you might be desperate for a five, but it's in somebody else's colour. Do you really need that five and maybe give them something? Or do you hold back because you really can't let them have anything else? So I like that thought process. I like the mechanism within itself, but then it it was on its own. I, I actually also like the idea of building up your own little house specialising in one of the three tracks and being like, we produce the best rogues. 
So we can go there. So the idea that you're getting these novices, you're building up your own staff, you're building up your own facilities, you can specialise to some degree, and then you're producing something unique. I like that. Unfortunately, the way you do it, we just moaned about it, playing onto this grid feels very soulless. The game was there that just needed to be pulled out and coalesced a bit and made a bit special. I mean, there's an absolute ton of pointless endgame scoring. I mean, there's probably 15 categories that's one point for this, a point for that, a point for having the most novice spaces on the board, which again isn't clarified in the rule book, but there you go. A, a, a point for having most money, a point for having most imps. You could go on. The trophies, just you could score for having three of the same trophy or three different trophies. They're gold, silver and bronze, but they all score the same. So why are they gold, silver and bronze? What's the point in collecting golds? And the fact that they get put out randomly, it's a lot of them come from training a warrior and they're not weighted in any way. You don't get, you can get a gold for training a level one and maybe a bronze for training a level three. Why are they three different levels then? There's just noise takes away from that nice, simple dice drafting idea. It's, it's, feels really frustrating like all the different tracks the stealth track the training dungeon track all this and you're kind of going why am i doing this this is oh, we're ragging on and on and on mate i think we should just sum up because clearly we're sounding like we hate the game but i think i'm trying to get more across frustration it is frustration Roman. and just to piggyback on onto you there i'm going to call out an skn now i've had problems with their games in the past. Now, I think their publisher has fantastic ideas. I always, almost always get excited about the ideas that come out of an SKN. But too many times I'm left disappointed. This one, it just felt like a prototype to me. The board size married with the tiny little chits, the wasted space. It's frustrating. Dragon's Gate College had some good ideas that just needed further exploring the look of the game it just looks bland the iconography doesn't tell you the story nothing on the board tells you the story of the game what this needed is a good publisher get hold of this game and say right these ideas are fantastic there's definitely a game here now, we don't like this, we don't like this, we like this, but we want you to expand on it. We're going to cut the board size, we're going to improve our iconography, we're going to make the colours a little bit more vivid to stand out from the crowd. We're not going to mislead people by producing a massive box that looks like it's a really deep game when it's really not. There was a game there, is what I'm trying to get across. The NSKN, you've got to up your game. You've got to improve in just get, taking these prototypes and pushing them out as finished products. This feels like you've just literally passed the prototype on for me. So Dragon's Gate College could have been, should have been a great game, but it's not. I think that Dragon's Gate College is actually a nice little dice game, which is worth playing. I wouldn't avoid it. If someone asked me to play it again, I'd say, yeah, sure, I'll play it again. But they've done the best to smother it, and they've done the best to put people off, and... You need to kind of just clear away all of that crap that's surrounding the base mechanism and dig into it that it needs a better rule book or get someone who knows the game to teach you. And then you've got 60 minutes of nice dice drafting action if you can cut out the nonsense. And in fact, in the end, the scoring is not great either, to be honest with you. Horribly bloated, I'm afraid. But at its core, it's a game that's worth playing. 
And that's my verdict on Dragon's Gate College. And we're going to be back after this short break for the second half with three more games. Okay, welcome back to part two. And we're going to kick off with Bali from White Goblin Games. Klaus Jürgen Reed is the designer, plays two to four players. The inhabitants of Bali are making sacrifices of the goods that they produce to the Elder Gods in order to appease them and chase away the demons, is the backstory to this one. In the game, on the table, you're going to have four different piles of sacrifices, banana, rice, peanut and pepper. You're going to have a little altar in the middle, and that's where you're going to be placing these sacrifices eventually. And you've got what's called the offer, which is four columns or four cards. The cards involved are the priests, shrines, stonemasons, and farmers of each of the sacrificial goods. You also have stone, which is your money, and you've got some point tokens. On a turn, the first thing you're going to have the option to do is buy one of those sacrifice cards. They are going to cost you five stone minus the amount of farmers of that good type you have in your play area. Then you must play a card from your hand and you can play multiple farmers of the same type for a cost. The only other cost is shrines, which is going to cost you seven stone. And this also triggers a sacrifice round, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. The next stage is going to, you're going to pick a card from the offer and you're going to take it into your hand or take multiple ones if you've laid down multiple farmers and you're going to trigger scoring of the card that you reveal. Scoring is priests are going to give you a point for each that you have in your tableau plus a bonus for the player at the most. Farmers are going to give you one sacrifice good of the type uncovered and one bonus for the player at the most. Stonemasons are going to give you one stone for each player mason, and again, a bonus for the person with the most. And shrines are going to give you either stone or points and a bonus. I come back to the sacrifice. Now, this is all to do with end of game scoring. So, a sacrifice round starting with the player to the left of the one who played the shrine. Each player is going to choose a sacrifice card from their hand and place it face up on the altar. Then, the player who placed the shrine is going to place one from their hand face down and then one from the supply face up. The game ends when the stack of offer cards is depleted, and this is where you find out why we're putting those sacrifice cards onto the altar. So the end of game scoring, first let's get all the easy stuff out of the way. You're going to score points for your shrines, points for every five stone, and any points you've collected during the game. Now, you're going to count all those sacrifice cards on the altar. The one that has the highest amount of cards in it is going to score three points for every one of those cards that players have kept in their hand. And then next, the second is going to be two points, and the third one point with the, the fourth good, if it's present at all, is not going to be worth anything. And that's Barley Ronan. How did you find it? Super, super quick. Yeah, I didn't really make it clear the first time we played this to Ronan how quick it ends. So I was busy beavering around, getting my staff, doing my things, and he was kind of preparing to pounce. And you never. Oh, look, it's game over. I've won, Ronan. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Not just that, though. It's, it 
feels like a game which you're trying to build an engine. So when you're trying to build an engine, you're like, oh, I'll get four of these going, and then I'll look what everyone else is doing and go, and go from there. This game does not give you that opportunity. An engine is one or two of something. <laughs> an engine is getting, and it's looking at what everyone else has got and immediately responding. It's not, oh, yeah, cool. You, you have hold of the peppers in 10 minutes' time. I'll get there. In 10 minutes' time, the game's going to be over. Now, that doesn't mean there's no decisions, which you might think from a super quick game like that. It means every single card you choose to take or play matters because majorities are three to two or two to one. You, it's not big differences. Everyone's fighting over the same thing. Player turns are super quick and it's going round and round and every single one matters, Sean. I was really engaged with it all the way through. Yeah, Ronan, it's, it's that one mechanism that I really, really do enjoy, which is choosing a card from the offer. And there's so much things around that. It's what do you want in your tableau? What's going to trigger for you? What's going to trigger for your opponent's? What's going to open up for the others to take the plan to get cards into your hand? So if there's cards at the back of the column, you start on that column to try and get towards them in the hope that other people leave them open for you to take them. So so much just off that one very simple mechanism, which is what I really like about the game. Yeah, and what that kind of calls to is the fact that everything is player-driven. What you have to play, what other people have to play, what you make available, what is going to score what the majorities are we are making the decisions together and it's all very much how the table is playing absolutely means you have to adapt to how you're playing and again i've harped back on otis once before i'm going to harp back again in otis you choose what you're doing it doesn't really matter what everyone else is doing in barley what everyone else does then affects what you're doing and the players as a group are driving how each game is going to develop yeah, and it's, it's timing as well, isn't it, Roland? So when someone starts playing those shrines down, everyone's got to start reacting. You're like, oh my God, what are, they, what are they working towards? And then on top of that, the slight bluffing element that you've got with that one face-down card. Are they trying to trick me? Because then they're, they're going to place a face-up card after. Is it the same card? Is it a different one? Are they hedging their bets? What are they getting into their hand? As you said, very quick, but quite a lot going on in that quick time frame. It's, it's horrible when someone plays a shrine. It's like a triple whammy. <laughs> it genuinely is. Because firstly, they're going to score four points for the shrine. And they're forcing you to play a card from your hand. That card is going to be points probably at the end of the game to you. So they're scoring four. They're stealing a point scoring card from your hand. And also, they have more control on what's going to score most at the end of the game. It's so powerful. You're like, oh, genie, can you stop playing shrines? I've got two sacrifices left in my hand. I can't afford to buy more. I'm going to score nothing. Stop playing shrines, everyone. <laughs> it's, it's a definite headache. Just moving slightly back to my favourite area, Ronan. What did you feel about the general design, the art quality, the quality of the cards? I was happy with it all. I think it's high quality design. I think everything was clear, what the colours were. I had no problem with it at all. I was in the theme. I know that I think you're going to say you preferred the Rapa Nui presentation. I've never played Rapa Nui. I was perfectly happy with the Barley representation. I think it's horses for courses. I didn't particularly like the slightly gaudy, bright presentation. But You others... didn't like the brighter presentation? What? Yeah, it was, it was kind of well, not garish. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't as far as garish, but it was very gaudy and very sort of vivid colours. And I kind of liked the, the serenity of the Rapa Nui production. But it's not a serene game. 
No, it's I not. I think the no, colours suited yeah. the way it plays. It, it, it is actually, you have to be on the ball. You, you have to be, be quite right. like, oh, yeah. what's going on? Oh, that's in. Okay, cool, right. I, I think it suited it. If it had a serene presentation, I'd be a bit like, this, is, this doesn't really go. This is not a deep thinky, yeah, yeah. lots of undercurrents. This is all, it, it kind of reminded me of being in a market and trading and being quick and going, oh, well, they've got two of them quick. I need to get some of them in. They're, they're running hot. Oh, no, no one's getting peanuts. Okay, maybe that's not the thing to get into right now. Yeah, and I think what it definitely did was everything was super clear. You need to be able to quickly identify what's in the offer. So some of the cards are going to be hidden by the other ones in front of them. So you need to know exactly what's coming up. So I think it did a very good job of that. Great. Well, I think it's a really nice, quick game, fast-paced, player-driven. And I recommend Barley. I really do like it for that shorter but not brainless game area. Yeah, very quick, but definite things to think about within this time frame. Very simple economy going on, timing element, bluffing. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Bali. I was a fan of Rapanui and nothing not to like about Bali. So yeah, there you go. It's a hit for the game pit. Ronan, it certainly your... is. That rhymed. That there you nice. go. <laughs> what's your last I wonder game? if Deadline will be fine. Ooh, or could it be Sublime? That's an M. I didn't you've ruined everything. What are you doing? <laughs> okay. The deadline from Adam West and Dan Schnick. It's from Crosscut Games and Whiz Kids for two to four players, 60 minutes. New York, 1938. The players are a team of PIs with a handful of cards and a case to crack. They're going to get some hot tips. They're going to get set a story. They're going to be given a few locations and a deck of more to discover. And they're going to have to visit these locations to try and break the leads. Now, locations come face down. And on the back of the cards, there are a bunch of symbols. They're guns and hats and booze and cigarettes and all sorts. On a player's turn, they have to choose a location to visit. They know the name and hopefully they know a little bit of a reason why they might want to visit it according to whatever case you're doing. There's 12 cases in the box. They're then going to play a card. Then it goes to the next player and around the table you're looking to cooperatively get the set of symbols shown in the location. And if you manage to do that by playing cards down, you're going to be able to flip the card, read it, learn a little bit more about the story and bring possibly more locations into play. If you can't play a card in your turn, you've got a couple of options. There are these hot tips, they're little matchbooks that get flipped over when certain cards are played. You can flip them back over for a power. Uh, it might help you get rid of bad cards you have to play. Those bad cards are going to come into play when you can no longer add to the investigation. If you've got a bad card in your hand, you put it down. It might make all investigations more difficult. It might make you have to discard certain cards. It might make you have to flip back over hot tips that are not useful anymore. Whatever it might be. There's also each player is an individual character and those individual characters have their own once again power, which might help you swing a vital lead just when you most need it. If you cannot crack a lead once you start playing on it and you cannot flip the location over, you've got three bullet tokens, which kind of act as lives. Once you've discarded, you discard one if you can't crack a location. Once you've discarded all three, you then start having to discard locations out of the deck, meaning that you might not get vital clues in order to solve the case once there are no more locations left in play you're going to be set a load of questions with regards to the case you're going to decide between you what your answers are and then you're going to look at the actual resolution and see how close you've got to being correct sean deadline did you feel like a pi in new york 1938 this is exactly it ronan you're straight into the nitty-gritty aren't you I, i'm not messing around you're not messing around 
I've got a case to crack. Let's go. <laughs> My one slight concern about this one, once I thought about it and what it was going to present was, yeah, was it another one of those Sherlock and Mycroft games? I think it was Beyond Baker Street was another one where the puzzle was very was very strong and decent, but the actual feeling that you're in a mystery and you're trying to solve a crime wasn't quite present. That was my slight concern about this one. But I think it's player-dependent, but for me, definitely, I felt like I was solving a mystery run, and I really got into that side of it, and I was, I was really working my brain in two different ways. How much of that was down to my bad acting? <laughs> That's why I said player-dependent. <laughs> you almost have to get involved and you have to do the bad 1920s American accents. You almost have to believe that you're a gumshoe in 1920s, 30s America on the trail of a murderer and you have to get involved in the game. Uh, one of the concerns I had beforehand was the fact that you can see your cards you can see what you've got, and you're not allowed to fully communicate what you have, which leads me to two things. Limited communication like that in a co-op it was always a little bit of a, a red flag for me. The limited communication. How did you feel about it? Did that work? And we're going to move on to the second bit, which is trying to create the actual pattern of symbols. How frustrating was it when you were blocked? The limited communication, I would say, is one of my favourite parts of this game because it created stories. And it's the way we made it part of the game, making stories. I, I'm, I'm feeling quite dapper. So you might have a rake of hats in your hand. I'm feeling quite dapper today, but I'll tell you what, mess with me, and you're going to get hit because you've got some guns Sean's in got guns. Sean's got guns. guns. Yeah, and you make up stories. And, and as the game progressed, we were making up <laughs> wilder and wilder stories. Rona became a drunk, a dapper drunk, who was just always on the whiskey. I was. What, what do you mean, became? <laughs> Continued to be a dapper, not a well, a drunk. We'll stay at that one. Oh, oh. keep dapper. You don't <laughs> treat me good. It was funny and it did create a bit of story, and we went with it. I think you have to go with it. You have to break down that little bit of abstraction and just go, okay, so this set of symbols I've got, what can that mean? And like the fact that we went to the morgue, and then suddenly I had a load of hats and a load of booze somehow it became that I'd stolen the clothes of the dead and then I didn't feel good about it so then I started drinking to ease my anxiety <laughs> I don't know how funny that is it's funny at the time and the actual pattern though card play Sean the fact you have to get these symbols out you don't know exactly what each other have you can block each other by mistake that could sound frustrating well, it can be. You can complete. You could be sitting with a whole hand of cards that you think you're very strong. Listen, I've got a bit of everything. I can take, cope with everything. And then someone puts down the exact perfect storm of a card. And you're like, I can't do anything. I could have done so much this round. <laughs> That's the actual voice you use yeah. as well. There was a few swear words aimed at you, but no, other than no, that, no, no. I can not believe it. No, no. Ronan, two slight things that I didn't enjoy so much about the game. First off, I felt it was a little bit too long for comfort. I was starting to wane towards the end, and there's only so much that you, the banter around the table, etc., can allow. And I thought that you could miss key information purely by chance. So... I'll say that I think that the first case is a slight misstep because there's not much deduction in there. It's a case of if you play well enough to get to all the locations, you will get all the information laid on a plate to you and then you'll be able to answer the questions. And you don't have to work anything out. It doesn't work as an investigation and it goes on too long. 
for that sort of simplicity. It starts, there's a bit of intrigue, there's a few different suspects, you can whittle them down, but there's too many locations to whittle them down. So too simplistic a plot. I think if they wanted that case one just to be a simple introduction to how the mechanisms work, they needed to cut maybe five locations out, maybe even more. And just say, here you go, this will work in 45 minutes. Now you know how to play. Now we're going to give you a bit more to think about. There's your misstep. I think in later cases, it does become more interesting. There are more interesting locations. You have to do a bit more deduction, work things out. Think maybe still a tiny, tiny bit too long. And slightly shorter location decks would have been more fun. Just, um, just after the first case too long, after that, tiny bit too long so ronan i'm going to sum up on this one it is a surprise how much i really enjoyed deadline it is a puzzle but it's a puzzle where the theme does really come through the card artwork it's it's not the greatest card artwork but it brings you into the theme there's old pictures of manhattan and new york and stuff like that the game for me is very player dependent but if you get the right crowd around you at this one and everyone's willing to go into character, have a bit of fun, I think it's a very strong game. And that's Deadline for me. I like the feel of it. I think that the gameplay itself does genuinely feel cooperative because you have to all get somehow on the same wavelength, help each other out. Even from the decision of what location to go to, you have to have that conversation, giving each other little hints and you can't just fire off on your own. I like the pressure that's there sometimes just to stay in because if you drop out, you're going to have to play a bad card. So you just, "Ah, anything I can do and you might have to cover over a useful symbol and you're weighing up in your own mind. Oh, do I think they can get us out of this hole? But really, if I drop out, it's going to be terrible for us. I like the little bit of bad acting that goes on. Once you get a feel for the game, just crack into the later cases. Don't worry too much about case one. Just play it quickly. Kind of go, right, great, great. Yeah, we know how this game works. Cool. Let's move on. And then once you dive into cases two to 12, then you start even more. And I had fun playing case one. I don't want to go on about too much. Crack on into the other cases. You're gonna. There's a lot to enjoy in this game. I know it's got limited plays. only got 12 cases in there, but that's 12 solid hour and a quarter hour and a half long game so there's plenty in there for me and deadline was a big big hit very good okay so we're going to move on to our last game of the show and it was the only one that we didn't preview it's speed colors from game factory and lifestyle board games limited designed by erwin morin and two to five players so in speed colors each player is dealt a plastic coated card with a black and white picture on one side And on the other side is exactly the same picture, but this one is coloured in. Players are going to have the chance to study the coloured in side, and they're going to try and memorise where each colour is on the picture. And then when they feel they're ready, they're going to flip it over, and there's a bunch of felt-tip pens matching each of the colours, and you're going to colour it in as quickly and, and as accurately as you can. The first person who believes they finished is going to shout stop, and everyone else has got to finish exactly where they are. Then you go on to point scoring, and you're going to get two points for each correctly coloured section. One point if a section is coloured but incorrectly, and no points for having no colour at all or a repeat of one of the colours. And all areas of each section must be coloured in with no colouring over the edges, so you've got to be a little bit careful. Between rounds, there's another twist where the player at the least points is going to swap two of the pen lids to confuse everybody further. And you play up to four rounds, and the person who has been most accurate in that time is going to win. 
Now, Speed Colors is a very simple premise, Ronan. I picked it up for my boy at the Essen Spiel because I just thought he'd like to colour it in. I didn't have massively high hopes for it. Yeah, colouring in game. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things that does get overlooked sometimes by Spiel or the people who go there for the first time are surprised by how much of a family convention it is and how much of a family activity it, gaming is in Germany and if you have got kids it's an absolute treasure trove and I've never gone there that I haven't come away with something for my kids that was unexpected and that they really really enjoyed I didn't know anything about Speed Colors when actually <laughs> I went to the booth and chatted to Artemis and got the game and I had no idea until you did your pit stop of it what it played like and to be honest I wasn't that interested because my kids aren't that young and then I saw it and I saw the whole idea and I saw the swapping of the pens and actually I was like that could be quite fun. There's something a little bit more there, more than meets the eye, possibly, Sean. Yeah, and it's it's hard to see exactly why it's more than meets the eyes. I think it's just, it can be adapted, the older player, to play against the younger players. For instance, when me and my wife are playing with our little boy, we give him as long as he wants, and we literally get the other person goes, well, you've got five seconds, five, four, and even with the counting down, it makes it even harder. Five, four, three, two, one, boom, you. What I really like about it is he gets him concentrating, but also working to a slight time pressure. He's got that race element, and it's very gentle, but it's it's definitely there. And this is one that's... I've spoken to Dan Hughes from Dan and Cora fame, and this game is broken podcast, and himself and Cora are really enjoying Speed Colour. So I don't know quite what it is, but he's definitely got something. And in terms of age range... James is five. I think Cora's around the same sort of age. Is it is it limited on there, or how old would you go with it, basically, for children? To be honest, yeah, I think like you go up to maybe seven for children. And then I think there's a big gap, because I think you could adapt this into a little drinking game. You've got to take a swig for every, every colour you get wrong, that kind of thing. So, and obviously, the more you drink, the more you're going to get wrong. So, I think... <laughs> Especially with the memory element with the pens. And how many rounds are there? Like how messed up do the pens get as you're playing? Is it there? Well, you're going to play four rounds so they could get into complete disarray. So you're going to have oh. people go, oh, no, I was sure that was a red. It's a yellow. Yeah, that, I sound like I'm going to do get some things wrong there. Okay, cool. So a big thumbs up on speed colours. Full recommendation. For me, where I'm at at the moment with my son's age, he's thoroughly enjoying it. It's that, and I think Sticky Chameleons are the two games from Essen that he demands to play all the time. So absolutely, thumbs up for me on Speed Colours. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Please see afterwards the outro, and we're going to mention a Kickstarter that is quite nostalgic and exciting for us, Sean. Indeed, Ronan. We're very excited. So there we have five of the games we had previously treasure hunted and one extra game for you, all coming from Essen, Ronan. I think a fairly good bunch, all in all. I think we were up and down. (laughs) 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 A couple of Euro releases that we didn't love, but some games that we really did. And speaking of games we really love, Sean, take us back to the mists of episode one of the Game Pit. Oh, yeah, we had... 
D-Day Dice in our very first episode. We were both. Don't, don't go and listen to it, by the way. Don't, don't no know. one go and listen. I don't think to you it. can no, find anyway. it. It's, I think it's just degraded because it was that bad. But <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we, we it's a game we both really enjoyed. I think we both got it for Christmas that year, and we've smashed the life out of it. And it's uh, coming round again, Ronan. Yes, indeed. D-Day Dice, second edition from Wordforge Games, is on Kickstarter. It went live on Saturday, the 11th of November 2017. Be on there for the next few weeks. I am super excited. Uh, we have done a pit stop for it. We'll just keep plugging those. Go and have a look if you want an idea of what the second edition is going to look like. It's got the, the map layout that it looks like, and the dice can be similar to the first edition, so we use them to show you. They have got all sorts of plans for the system. They want to bring back an expanded Atlantic war we can play as the Germans. They want to bring back a sort of almost sister game to it where you're playing as a landing craft captain. If it's successful, they want to move it to a different theatre in the Pacific. They've got lots of ideas for expansions and stretch goals. We was chatting to them uh, at Spiel. Uh, we, they sent us a demo kit. We are super excited about it. Just for us, just to... I want to back it and I want all the stuff they do because it's a system that I really, really enjoy. A great cop dice roller. So personal recommendation, go and check out D-Day Dice on Kickstarter and have a look at our pit stop. Why not? It's, it's there. You know, it's a thing. Yeah, it's also a very good solo game, Ronan. It's one of the few games I've ever played good solo. I do like it with a couple of players, though, as well, because it's a bit yeah, sort of bouncing. Yeah, like bounce off each other, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Solo, I tend to play with two, because there's a little bit of having to swap dice, and some of the specialists, they've got solo rules for them, but I like the idea that one can be doing well in soldiers and help out the other one, and vice versa, and whatever. But uh, solo as well, great. Very good. And thank you very much, Ronan. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. As I said, coming up, our next episode in a week's time will be with Eleanor when there's going to be loads of games covered, but probably slightly lighter games. And then the next episode after that is going to be with Puria. And then Sean will be back because he'll have played loads of games, would have been at LobsterCon, and we'll have lots and lots to discuss. Yeah, so yeah, I'm mentioning LobsterCon. It's still still places available if you do want to come and join us. You've got like a maybe three hours as this goes live to get tickets so oh, this yeah. is probably not very no, uh, no, okay, it's not going to last long this <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah I'll leave, I'll leave that one <laughs> but if you're desperate to go and you've heard this before 12.30 on Monday the 13th of November 2017 all seven of you you go get a ticket what you're going to listen to it twice <laughs> yeah and mum, don't forget mum, she always listens. <laughs> okay, and as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to email us, we're on thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. And another fantastic way of getting hold of us is in our Board Game Geek Guild. Pop along to Board Game Geek for that. We're on social media. We have a Facebook page. We are on Twitter at GamePit Podcast, and we're also on Instagram. If you should download our podcast episodes, we are on Podbean, iTunes, and Stitcher, and we have a YouTube channel where our podcasts actually do display on there too, but mainly it's for our pit stop videos. Go there if you want an overview on games we cover and a general idea if you're going to enjoy them or not. And thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron.
boy, 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 bo